Welcome to Damn Good Movie Memories with your host, Ryan Davis. This podcast is the cure for your long commute and super boring work day. Sister, sister, oh so fair. Why is there blood all over your hair? Whatever happened to baby Jane? To seek the answer to that question, we will follow a man plotting a murder. Highly specialized work. But Robert Aldridge has considerable experience in such matters. He has a dozen successful pictures to his credit. His stars are Betty Davis and Joan Crawford. The Scene. An Italianate villa in a once fashionable section of Los Angeles. Its halls, once crowded with the bright, the beautiful, and the celebrated, now echo only to hectic whispers, the insistent call of a buzzer better left unanswered, a telephone that has become an object of fear, a supper tray that will not be touched, a window barred against the world, a hammer, a mute scrawl crying for help. From these elements, director Aldrich has fashioned a motion picture with a curious title. Whatever happened to baby Jane? Betty Davis is Jane Hudson. Joan Crawford is Blanche Hudson. But we must warn you, if you're long-standing fans of Miss Davis and Miss Crawford, this motion picture is quite unlike anything they have ever done. It is a bold essay in the art of the macabre. A venture to the ultimate reaches of terror. A motion picture definitely not for the screaming. And we beg you, as the tension builds to the screaming point, as shock after shock assaults your senses, try to remember that this is only a motion picture. Try and remember. We can't show you anymore. Only when you see whatever happened to baby Jane will you know. And the answer is total suspense. Hey there, it's Brian Davis, and for this week's episode, we're going to cover the movie Whatever Happened to Baby Jane from 1962. The studio was Warner Brothers. Release date was October 31st, 1962. That's right, on Halloween. The running time, 134 minutes, and it was in black and white. The budget, 980000 and the box office was a hit, taking in $9.5 million, which is the equivalent of $82.5 million today. It was the 20th ranked film of 1962. Leonard Maltin from his classic movie guide gives it 3.5 out of 4 stars. His synopsis is a far-fetched but thoroughly engaging black comedy of two former movie stars, Joan Crawford, a cripple at the mercy of her demented sister, Baby Jane Hudson, played by Betty Davis. Betty has a field day in her macabre characterization with Victor Buono, a perfect match. The film triggered a decade-long spate of older female stars in horror films. Rotten Tomatoes gives it 92% fresh from 50 reviews. Their critics' consensus is whatever happened to Baby Jane combines powerhouse acting, rich atmosphere, and absorbing melodrama in service of a taut thrower with thought-provoking subtext. 
Now, this is a film I sort of knew about for years, but never watched it all the way through until I was an adult, and I was always seeing bits and pieces on television as a kid, but once I immersed myself with classic films as I got older and attempted to see many Betty Davis and Joan Crawford films, as many as I could find, this was an obvious one to check out. And if you can still find it, definitely check out the FX miniseries Feud, Betty and Joan, which covers the entire filming of Baby Jane and the rivalry between the two stars. Susan Sarandon plays Betty Davis, who, even before this, I always thought they kind of looked alike before the miniseries. And Jessica Lange plays Joan Crawford. It is terrific and will definitely make you appreciate this film even further. All right, normally at this time I go into the main stars. Instead, because these stars are so huge and they are literally some of the most iconic actresses of all time, I'll, I'm going to give you a more in-depth analysis of Betty Davis and Joan Crawford of their career up until 1962. So throughout their careers, Betty Davis and Joan Crawford were considered rivals, both in the press and off screen. So to finally have a film which put both legends on screen together for the first and only time, as it turned out, that was a huge coup for not only the studio, but movie fans. You had these two alpha actors competing for screen time. It's like having two superstar basketball players always wanting the ball. And sometimes they play well together, and sometimes not so much. Betty Davis often said in interviews that she and Crawford had nothing in common, but in reality they shared a similar drive and motivation to succeed in one of the most difficult professions and against very long odds. And both often played strong female characters and could command a film with just their presence only. Joan Crawford initially set out to be a dancer, not an actress. In 1928, she starred in the film Our Dancing Daughters, which was a success and featured Crawford dancing throughout the film. MGM then decided to give Crawford more films to star in, and that began her career as an actress, not just as a dancer. She was given a long-term contract and starring roles with big-name actors. She was the modern woman for the times. On the other hand, Betty Davis came from the theater, and she was a well-trained actor. This is probably why Davis often said she had nothing in common with Crawford, and to this point, I can understand why she would have this attitude. Being a dancer was beneath Betty Davis. And after a successful run on Broadway, Davis stormed into Hollywood. What also likely bothered Davis when being compared to Joan Crawford was that Davis never was considered a classic beauty. Now, she had those quote-unquote Betty Davis eyes, which, to be sort of blunt, they kind of bulged out a bit. But it also made her distinguishable. And of course, Kim Carnes made that song very popular almost 50 years after Davis's career began. Interestingly enough, Davis said her large eyes were a major asset on stage because they were expressive and stood out for the audiences in the theater. There were no Zoom cameras on stage, whereas Crawford had the looks for the era. Davis was seen more for her talent, which is what she wanted. She brushed off Crawford as someone with the body and the looks, but little talent. One of the key figures in Betty Davis's career was British actor George Arliss, who helped cast Davis in her first breakout role in 1932, which was the film The Man Who Played God. Ironically, that title was apropos, as Davis credited Arliss for being one of the most important people in her film career. Arliss believed Davis could be a strong leading lady and eventually a force in film. Of course, he was spot on with this evaluation. If it wasn't for Arliss, the studio was likely going to drop Davis from her contract at the time. After the film, Davis received a contract from Warner Brothers. Joan Crawford, it was said, was incredibly down to earth early on in her career. Though that all changed forever when she was briefly married to Douglas Fairbanks Jr., who was Hollywood royalty at the time. This is where Crawford became part of that elite society, and her diva attitude was developed, and it never went away. She and Fairbanks' marriage only lasted four years. 
Crawford would always be dressed up no matter where she went. She embodied glamour and the Hollywood star persona. And she was famously quoted as saying, if you want to see the girl next door, go next door. Betty Davis, to her credit, would immerse herself in her film roles. She didn't care what she looked like on screen. If the character called for her to be less than glamorous, that's what she went for, which was definitely the case in Baby Jane. Crawford, on the other hand, her look was like her brand. She wore these large shoulder pads, she had full lips, and piercing dark eyes. She wasn't going to change her look no matter what the role was. Unfortunately, Warner Brothers wasn't the best place for a strong female talent like Betty Davis because Jack Warner didn't know how to market a leading woman. He would market gangster films and male actors, but he was clueless with actresses. So Davis had to be her own advocate for which film she selected, which was not the standard in the early contract days of Hollywood. You took whatever roles were assigned to you by the studio. This meant Davis would often clash with Warner and the other executives. Davis's advocacy for herself paid off in 1934 when she really pushed to get the leading role of Human Bondage, which was produced by RKO. After months of pleading with Warner to loan her out to RKO, she got her wish and she earned an Academy Award nomination, proving that she was a force to be reckoned with. On the other hand, MGM was known for their glamorous movies and musicals, and they knew how to market actresses, which benefited Joan Crawford greatly. And she starred with Clark Gable and Robert Young, among many other top-billed actors of the time. She appeared in eight movies with Gable, and they were very popular together. One of Crawford's talents was that she was always savvy enough to change her image with the times, and she did this throughout her career, which is really why she stayed popular longer than most actresses did in a very short-lived type of business. By 1938, Davis had won two Oscars for Best Actress, and Hollywood began to create strong roles just around her. Her rebel attitude in the early years paid off and continued throughout her career. However, that's not to say it was easy for her or smooth sailing. Davis would often reject roles or go on strikes with the studio if she felt the role wasn't up to her standards. On the other hand, Crawford always wanted to be seen as a serious actress, though still keeping her glamorous persona. She wanted to move from the rags-to-riches type roles her fans adored to more serious Betty Davis type roles. Sometimes it worked, like in The Women in 1939. But it was also difficult to break the persona her fans adored her for during her stardom in the 30s. Crawford would win her one and only Oscar in 1946 for Mildred Pierce. So her change definitely paid off there. In 1943, MGM dropped Crawford from her contract, which was devastating to her after 18 years with the studio. But in a twist of fate, Warner Brothers signed her for a third of her MGM contract, and she took it. She knew Betty Davis was the queen of the Warner's lot and wasn't trying to compete with her. But, like she often did, Crawford overdid it by trying to warm up to Davis, sending her tons of flowers and notes and things like that. But Davis saw this as fake and rejected these efforts as staged. And thus, there continued the rivalry between the two. Ironically, Betty Davis was offered Mildred Pierce but turned it down. Davis's loss was, of course, Crawford's good fortune. And this move was said to have caused the public rift between the two women, as Crawford was rising in the ranks of Warner Brothers while Davis was winding down after the success of Mildred Pierce. Okay, let's get into the making of the film. So during the 1950s, both Davis and Crawford were no longer under the studio system and were essentially freelancers. Now, this was good and bad. It was good that they could choose their own roles, but they weren't protected by the studio system which means they weren't guaranteed steady work like they were if they're under the contract of the studio. However, both actresses worked steadily throughout the 1950s and had successes from time to time, but it wasn't the same as before. 
By the time Baby Jane came around in 1962, both actresses jumped at the chance of starring roles with a major studio, though it was the type of film they likely would have rejected 15 years earlier. However, there of course was drama to get both women in the film. Davis wouldn't take the film unless she was the heavy main character of Jane, and Crawford had to be the character in the wheelchair, Blanche. So if you didn't know, the film is based on a novel published in 1960 by Henry Farrell. At first, Jack Warner was not interested in having two older actresses as the main stars in a film. But director Robert Aldrich correctly saw the publicity advantage of having the two iconic actresses starring together for the first time on screen. Then, of course, Warner agreed, but only if the budget was small. Aldrich, like Davis and Crawford, was trying to revive his career after a dry spell. The success of Baby Jane eventually led to more success for the remainder of his career with Hush Hush, Sweet Charlotte, The Dirty Dozen, and The Longest Yard. On set, there was no feuding between the stars as they were both totally professional. Offset, however, was a different story. Davis, being the quote-unquote more versatile actress, would persuade Aldrich to go over more of her ideas, which led Crawford to being rightfully resentful over the slides. Crawford initially was against the costume she was to wear during the film, as of course she wanted to be more glamorous, but the costume designer convinced Crawford that the part called for a more toned-down look. Crawford, to her credit, agreed and went along with the costumes. Davis, of course, had no problems with her outrageous look and took delight in the pancake face makeup and was almost witch-like in her look. But that's not to say that Crawford gave up all of her vanity. There was a scene late in the film where Crawford is lying on the beach and she didn't want her breasts to fall to the side as they naturally would. So she used falsies to keep them upright. And Davis had her fall on top of her during one scene and they complained that they felt like two footballs jabbing her. <laughs> the success of the film really gave both actresses a chance to revitalize their career once again. And both took more thriller and horror films to round out the last half of their career. In another moment of irony, Betty Davis fully expected to win her much-coveted third Oscar for Baby Jane. However, Joan Crawford had convinced Anne Bancroft that if Bancroft won for her performance in The Miracle Worker, and Bancroft couldn't attend, Crawford would accept the Oscar in her honor. Of course, Bancroft did end up winning Best Actress for The Miracle Worker, and guess who showed up? That's right, Joan Crawford accepted the Oscar on her behalf, and that infuriated Betty Davis in the process. Okay, let's get into the film. So we begin in 1917, where we see Baby Jane Hudson touring vaudeville theaters in various cities across the United States. Baby Jane sings and dances on stage and performs the sold-out shows with her father. Want to see it again, little girl? It shouldn't frighten you. Sorry, nothing until matinee tomorrow. Lady, would you mind taking off your hat? Show them how. 
you, folks. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. One final request, all right? I've written a letter to Daddy. Oh, all right, all right, all right. Thank you. I've written a letter to Daddy. That's a gorgeous doll. Folks, have you ever seen such a lovely doll? Now, that doll is a replica of Baby Jane and sold after the shows. Now, you couldn't tell from the clip, but this, on the side of the stage stands Jane's sister, Blanche, who is less than thrilled with being the ugly duckling and, frankly, forgotten sibling in the family. After the show, Jane is supposed to meet her fans outside the theater, but she throws a tantrum saying she's tired and wants ice cream. Jane knows that she's the cash cow and can get whatever she wants, so her dad gives in. We then fast forward 18 years to 1935, where we see a few movie executives watching the latest film from Jane in the studio screening room, which is actually a real Betty Davis film from the same era. The director and producer aren't enthusiastic about the film, especially Jane's performance. One of Jane's big issues is that she's drunk and she won't clean up her act. As it turns out, Blanche is now the big star. She's a top film actress. Blanche has a clause on her contract that Jane must be given a film for every film that Blanche makes. For whatever reason, Blanche didn't turn her back on Jane, even though Jane never deserved any sympathy. Later that night, Jane and Blanche arrive home. Blanche gets out of her car to open up the front gate. And Jane decides to put the car into gear and intentionally rams Blanche into the gate, which crushes her. Blanche is now paralyzed and her successful film career is over. 
We then go to present day, 27 years later in 1962, and the two sisters live together in a mansion that Blanche owns from her movie earnings. Jane is Blanche's caregiver, but there's very little care being given. Their next-door neighbors, a mother and daughter, are watching an old film on television which Blanche starred in. It's actually an old Joan Crawford film. The daughter hilariously wonders why they never see the famous Blanche Hudson, ever. Only the fat slob sister Jane, after living next door to them for six months. Now, the daughter that lives next door is actually Betty Davis's real-life daughter, B.D. Merrill. Later, her name was changed to B.D. Hyman after she married. Back to the movie, Blanche is in her house watching the film on television as well. Um, I guess you should know. Turn up the volume, dear. We're missing the picture. We have a little champagne? No, thanks. You want to tell Papa your troubles? Somebody you love? Jack, please try to understand. I married you because I was knocked silly. And it was a refuge. I found out tonight that this boy's in trouble. Maybe alone. And I'm blinded. I can't think of anything else. Oh, he should have held that shot longer. I told him that when we were rehearsing also when we shot it. Oh, he wouldn't listen. Wow. Still a pretty good picture. And Gemini. Enjoying yourself? Jane, what are you doing? I was... I was watching. Then you're an idiot. I won't have you speak to me like that. Ha! So yes, that's the type of help the wheelchair-bound Blanche gets from Jane. Anyway, the next-door neighbor decides to visit Jane and Blanche to give them some freshly cut flowers from their garden. Oh, good morning, Miss Hudson. I hope I'm not intruding. I just couldn't resist cutting these flowers for your sister after seeing her show yesterday. You must be very proud of her new success. On television, I mean. Yeah. I, I can't tell you how nice it is to be seeing all of her old pictures like this. I'll tell you since so. You know, uh, my... Uh, my daughter and I would just love to meet her one day. Perhaps she could... Mrs. Bates, my sister doesn't ever go out. She's um, not fit to receive visitors. Oh, I am sorry to hear that. I had no idea that... Uh, well, um... Uh, well, I, I hope she likes the flowers. Thanks. 
Oh, Jane, I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean to ring for my breakfast. I was just wondering who all those people were at the back door. It wasn't anything. Just that nosy Mrs. Bates going on about your picture last night. Oh, really? Did she like it? Oh, really? Did she like it? She liked it. I remember when it first came out, it had a tremendous reception. The critics described it as brilliant. Do you remember what year you made that picture? But of course. You must, too, 1934, right after I did Moonglow. I made a picture that year, too. Oh, yes. It was that comedy directed by Lloyd, wasn't it? No, it wasn't. It was a love story. The Longest Night. Martin McDonald said it was the best thing I ever did. They never even released it in the United States. Feldman was very upset. He told me the company had a very bad year and they couldn't have... No, they didn't. They had a great year. They didn't want to show my film. They were too busy giving a big build-up to that crap you were turning out. I'll clean the cage. Oh, that would be Elvira. Yeah. Elvira, played by Mady Norman, is the housekeeper. It should come as no surprise that Jane and Elvira don't get along, since nobody can get along with Jane. Elvira likes Blanche and wants what's best for her, and believes that Jane should be committed to a mental hospital. Elvira gives all of the fan mail sent to Blanche that's already been opened and read by Jane and was thrown in the trash before. Blanche plans on selling the house and likely committing Jane to the mental hospital. Even though Blanche thinks there's no way Jane could know of her intentions, Elvira believes otherwise, which is probably why Jane is more, even more miserable than usual. Blanche, no matter how badly Jane treats her, still has patience and kindness towards Jane. As a viewer, you can't imagine why anyone would put themselves through the torture of being around a miserable person like Jane. But it's a strange thing with family, I guess. And Blanche continues to make excuses for Jane about why she turned out the way she did. Elvira, you didn't know her when she was a child, when she was young. I've seen those pictures she keeps. It wasn't that she was just pretty. She was different. She was so alive. I was cleaning the cage. The bird got out. But where is it now? It flew out the window. Did you let that bird out on purpose, Miss Jane? I just told you I was cleaning the cage and the bird flew out the window. I'm sorry. Elvira, you won't change your mind, will you? I mean about coming to live with me. You know I don't go back on my word, Miss Blanche. But you've got to make up your mind about finding somewhere for Miss Jane, where they can look after her properly. I have. I have made up my mind. I'm going to call Dr. Shelby today. I know, Miss Blanche. I know. 
It, it's just that I have to be sure I'm doing the right thing for her. Moses Johnson's. I want to order some liquors. Jane Hudson. What do you mean you can't fill any more orders for me? My sister did. Well. Well, wait a minute. I'll I'll put her on. Blanche, would you speak to this man from Johnson's? Hello. Who is this, please? Oh, yes, Mr. Carson. Yes, this is Blanche Hudson. What seems to be the trouble? <laughs> I'm afraid there's been some misunderstanding. I certainly didn't mean to suggest that you shouldn't fill any orders for her. <laughs> After all, we, we do pay our bills, don't we? Yes, fine. Would you please? I'll put her on. Okay, then. Good. Yeah, I'd like to order six bottles of scotch and three bottles of gin. Yeah, the same brands. And as soon as possible. I just told Miss Blanche. I'm going downtown to see a man about jury duty. I'll be back tomorrow. Amazing how good of an impressionist Jane can be when she wants her booze. <laughs> that night, Jane gets plastered and starts having delusions of her younger years and when people actually cared about her. The postman says 
best, best to do. I've written a letter to Daddy, saying I love you. And do as I am told. I'm Mama's little angel, and Papa says I'm good as gold. But when I'm very bad and answer back and sass, then I'm Mama's little devil, and Papa says I've got the brass. Now I wish that you would tell me, 'cause I'm much too young to know. It seems like the last one why Betty Davis was nominated for an Oscar is Jane Hudson. She totally got into the role, and she didn't care about, you know, ugling herself up or looking haggard. I don't think Joan Crawford could have ever done this, and that's okay. You need that yin and yang. Anyway, after the incessant buzzing from Blanche, which is actually because she was worried about Jane, Jane finally arrives upstairs. brought my lunch. A bit early, isn't it? Then what were you ringing for? Oh, I uh, I wanted to tell you something's wrong with the telephone. Maybe, maybe it's been left off the hook downstairs. Is that so? Who'd you want to call, Blanche? Well, actually, I I wanted to call Bert Hanley. Oh, our business manager. Yes. There's uh, there, there's something I I've been meaning to discuss with you. I, well, I, well, well, 
I'm afraid I have bad news about money. You see, the point is, Bert thinks we'll probably have to sell the house. Why should we have to sell a house, Blanche? Well, that's what I'm trying to tell you. Our uh, financial position is such that we just, uh, we can't afford to. Got plenty of money invested, I know. Yes, yes, that's quite true, but some of those investments uh, aren't paying much. When did our business manager tell you all this? Early last week, I think. He didn't call here last week. I know that, too. No, we, we didn't actually speak on the telephone. He, um, he wrote me a letter. He didn't write you any letter, either. There hasn't been a letter from his office. Yes, Jane, there has. Oh, you're a liar. You're just a liar. You always were. Bird Hanley never wrote you any letter and never called you on the phone telling you to sell the house. You called him four weeks ago and told him to sell it. I did nothing of the sort. Don't you think I know everything that goes on in this house? You've been spying on me. <laughs> what do you think? You are disgusting. After all I've done for you, you spy on me. When all I'm trying to do is help. Who oh, are you trying to help, Blanche? What are you planning to do with me when you've sold the house? What you have in mind, some nice little place where they could look after me? Better not tie yourself out using the phone anymore. If there are any calls, I'll take them downstairs. Eat your lunch, it'll get cold. That's right, Blanche's lunch was the bird that supposedly flew away. At least it was served over freshly sliced tomatoes. Jane isn't completely heartless. Jane decides to leave the house without speaking to Blanche that afternoon. Blanche has no way to call anyone since Jane took the phone out of the room and threw it downstairs. Blanche tries to get the attention of the neighbors outside through her upstairs window, but to no avail. The reason Jane left the house was to place an ad in a newspaper in an attempt to revive her career. Yes, she's looking for a piano player like her father did for her in the Baby Jane Act almost 50 years prior. I mean, talk about delusional. Blanche types a note to contact a psychiatrist to commit Jane. Blanche tries to throw the note out the window for the neighbors to see. Unfortunately, the plan completely backfires massively as Jane pulls up in a car before the neighbor can see the crumpled note. And Jane picks it up and eventually reads it which means this is not good for Blanche.
Won't you have a nice drive? What are you talking about? Nothing, dear. I... So long since you were out of the house, I thought perhaps you'd gone for a drive or something. You know, I, I was thinking... It's ever so long since we had a talk. Uh, you know, a real talk. About the future and everything. Jane. I didn't want you to be worried about the house. Even if I do have to sell it, we'll still be together. Glad you're not going to sell this house. Daddy bought this house. And he bought it for me. You don't think I remember that, do you? You're wrong, Jane. You've just forgotten. I bought this house for the two of us. When I signed my first contract. You don't think I remember anything, do you? There are a whole lot of things I remember. And you never paid for this house. Baby Jane Hudson made the money that paid for this house. That's who. You don't know what you're saying. Blanche. You aren't ever going to sell this house. And you aren't ever going to leave it. Either. Jane. Jane. Do you remember when I first came back after the accident? You promised you wouldn't ever talk about that again. I know I did. But I'm still in this chair. After all those years, I'm still in this chair. Doesn't that give you some kind of responsibility? Jane, I'm just trying to explain to you how things really are. You wouldn't be able to do these awful things to me if I weren't still in this chair. But you are, Blanche. You are in that chair. And tell me, what are these awful things I'm supposed to be doing to you? Well, I... I, I meant... You wouldn't have to work so hard. And I, I was thinking maybe, maybe Elvira could come in more often. Maybe she could even live with us. We don't need Elvira. But you, you get so tired. You, there's so much to do and you're not well. Maybe you're right. Maybe I should get a checkup or something. That would be wonderful. Perhaps we could, we could find a really good doctor. Yeah, we could get hold of that nice Dr. Shelby, couldn't we? Yeah, let's see. What's his number again? And under no circumstances Tell my sister the contents of this note. It's not me that needs a Dr. Blanche. Yep, Blanche is effectively being held hostage by Jane. Outside of the House of Horrors, a struggling piano player named Edwin Flagg, played by Victor Buono, responds to Jane's newspaper ad after prodding his mother, whom he still lives with, that she act as his secretary to give a bit more weight to his credibility. <laughs> Edwin agrees to meet with Jane at 4 o'clock that day. After the call, Blanche budges Jane. Uh, 
want this time. Who was on the telephone? None of your business. What were you ringing for? I'm hungry, Jane. Well, of course you're hungry. You didn't eat your dinner. That's why you're hungry. But you forgot my breakfast. I didn't forget your breakfast. I didn't bring your breakfast because you didn't eat your dinner. Ha! You know, we're right back where we started. When I was on the stage, you had to depend on me for everything. Even the food you ate came from me. Now you have to depend on me for your food again. So you see, we're right back where we started. Why are you doing this to me? Why? Doing what? Making me afraid to eat. Trying to make me starve myself. Don't be silly. If you starve, you die. I don't know what you're talking about. You really must be sick. Jane, did you ever stop to think that if anything happened to me, I, I mean anything bad, there wouldn't be any money for you? I wouldn't be here to sign the checks. You wouldn't even have pocket money. Did you ever think of that? Yeah, I've thought about that. Why didn't you eat your dinner? Because I'm afraid. You made me afraid. <laughs> I thought you were supposed to be the big girl in this family. Nothing wrong with it. You're just a neurotic bunch. You know that? You're just a neurotic. Please, Jane, I'm so hungry. I have to go now. But just a little. Please. No. You didn't eat your dinner, so you'll have to wait till lunchtime. Oh, Jane, please. Don't do this to me. Jane! Jane, please! Apologize. Apologize? Yeah, I wasn't feeling so well yesterday. So I was unkind to you. I want to make it up. I got up this morning and fixed the house. So you can have the whole day off. Here's your $15. Well, thanks, but does Miss... Well, what I mean is, does Miss Blanche know about my taking the day off? Oh, sure, she knows. Well, all right, if you say so. See you next Tuesday, then. Yeah. Have a good time. Bye. Blanche's only hope is Elvira, but now that Jane has sent her home, Blanche is in big trouble because nobody is there to help her.
time considering. I told her to come back next week. Oh, Blanche. You know we got rats in the cellar? this time Blanche gets a dead rat for dinner (laughs) and oh man what a perfectly sinister laugh from Betty Davis later that day Edwin shows up to meet Jane and his reaction seeing her at the front door is priceless Jane gives her sales pitch to Edwin thinking that she can simply revive her act and the audiences are going to flock to see her Edwin quickly realizes that he's in the house of someone delusional but he needs the work so he goes along with her fantasies oh I wish daddy could be here right now You can never lose your talent, he used to tell me. You can lose everything else, but you can't lose your talent. Come on. I think you'll find these clippings very interesting. Daddy saved them for me from the very first. He used to put them in special books. I always liked that picture. It's so... So sad. Excuse me. Certainly. You always spoil everything. No, Jane, I just wanted to... Who is down there, I'll tell you. I got a friend down there, someone who's come to see me. He doesn't even know you exist. And you don't like that, do you? You're wrong, Jane. I've always wanted you to have friends. That's what I've always wanted, really. Then how come I never had any? Well, maybe you weren't... I I mean, maybe you were just too independent. No, that's not why. You always stopped me from having friends. That's why. Not anymore, Jane. Not anymore. I'm pleased that you have a friend. That's what you need. Oh, sure. I, I was just hoping maybe... Maybe I could 
Meet him and, and we could have a nice talk, just the three of us. Yeah, you'd like that, wouldn't you? Then you could tell him a whole lot of lies about me. Scare him off or, or maybe have him for yourself. to daddy his address is heaven above it's wonderful I've written a letter to daddy his address is I've written, dear daddy, we miss you And wish you were with us to love Instead of a stamp, I put kisses The postman says that's best to do I've written a letter to daddy Saying I love you certainly can play can't you and you certainly can sing oh thank you <laughs> now the glances that edwin gives throughout jane's performances are just hilarious since he knows she's loony after some awkward small talk and about each other's failed careers the topic of how much edwin will be paid comes up and they agree on a hundred dollars a week however jane has no money of her own it's all coming from blanche when jane leaves to give edwin a ride home blanche scours around the upstairs room looking for anything to eat, because she hasn't eaten all day. He eventually finds a box of chocolates in Jane's room and just devours them. Blanche also finds a signed photo of herself and a piece of paper where Jane has tried to copy Blanche's signature. It looks like Jane is trying to perfect the signature in order to write checks in Blanche's name. At her wit's end now, Blanche decides to crawl down the stairs in order to reach the telephone. However, it's a race against time, as Jane will be coming back home shortly. 
Orange Hudson. I need your help. Is the doctor there? I must talk to him. Well, he's with the patient right now. But I have to talk to him. I've got to. Hold on, please. I'll see if I can interrupt him. Dr. Shelby? Yes, Blanche. Miss Hill tells me that you're a little upset. What seems to be the trouble? You must help me. I need you here. No. It's about my sister. I need your help. I need you here. Here at the house. No. No, it's nothing like that. It's the way she's behaving. You've got to come over right away. Please, before she comes back. I don't quite understand. Is this some kind of emotional disturbance you're talking about? Yes. Yes, she's emotionally disturbed. She's unbalanced. I don't know, doctor. I mean... You're trying to tell me that she's violent? Yes. Yes, she is. I'm not sure. I... I don't... Very well. We aren't getting anywhere like this. I'll come over right away. There's a great suspenseful scene at the end where Blanche turns around and Jane is staring right at her. Jane completely loses it and knocks Blanche off her seat and repeatedly kicks her while Blanche lays helplessly on the ground. Jane then calls Dr. Shelby back on the phone and impersonates Blanche's voice saying that Jane has decided to go to another doctor. Jane then drags Blanche upstairs again and locks her in her room. Now, Joan Crawford demanded a body double for these last scenes where Jane attacked Blanche, claiming that she needed stitches after Betty had kicked her in the head. <laughs> after that, Joan Crawford allegedly put weights in their pockets of her robe to make it harder for Betty to drag her around. And for the second take, Betty Davis actually injured her back trying to drag Crawford around. Oh, fun with these ladies. The next day, Jane runs into Elvira. you not to come back until next week. Oh, I know you did, but I had a free day today, so I thought I'd come by and see if there's anything needed doing. Well, there isn't anything, so you could have saved yourself the trouble. I was going to write you a note, but now you're here, I may as well tell you. We're not going to be needing you anymore. But I don't understand. We're closing up the house. Blanche wants to take a smaller place at the beach. The doctor thinks that's best for us, so that's what we're going to do. Oh, don't worry. You'll be paid for today. I'll send you a check. I'm not worried about any pay. I'd just like to see Miss Blanche before I go. Well, you can't. She's asleep. That's all right. I, I don't mind waiting. Well, I do. I, I gotta leave, so just give me the keys to the house. I'm sorry, I don't have the keys. I must have left them at home. Anyway, go. You're fired.
Instead of catching her bus, Elvira decides to return to the house since she still has a key and she knows that Jane isn't home. She suspects something is wrong with Blanche. Elvira goes upstairs to look for Blanche and knocks on her door, but there's no answer. Also, the door is locked shut and she finds the buzzer is disconnected. While Elvira tries to get into Blanche's locked room, Jane is at the bank taking out as much money as possible from Blanche's account. Jane arrives home and runs into her next-door neighbor. Oh, Miss Hudson! I'm glad I caught you. I hope you don't mind, but there's something I've been meaning to ask you. What? Well, to tell you the truth, I'm kind of short of help around the house, and I was wondering if you'd mind my asking your cleaning maid if she could give me a couple of days a week. Well, as far as I'm concerned, you can have her as often as you want. My sister and I are moving, so we, we won't want her anymore. But you'll have to call her, because she isn't here. I've already sent her home. But I just saw her. Yes, but I sent her home. Oh, no, but that's impossible. I saw her go in the house a few minutes ago. In the house? Yes. Uh-oh, Jane knows Elvira's there. And that's what's great about the film, the tension and suspense. So you finally decided to come back, huh? What are you doing here? I told you you were fine. Never mind all that. I want to know what's going on around here. But you, you said you didn't have your key. Just so happens that I did. So now you can tell me what you mean by locking Miss Blanche in her room. But, but this is Blanche's house. This is my house, and I can do what I like. Doesn't make a bit of difference whose house it is. You've got to act like a grown woman, the same as everybody else. Suppose there'd been a fire or something, Miss Blanche locked up in a room like that. Well, there wasn't. You open that door and stop all this nonsense. No. And give me the key. No. She, she, she's asleep. I, I gave her a pill. You did, huh? Then you better give me that key and be quick about it. I won't and you can't make me. I'm not afraid of you. Miss Hudson, I'm not going to fool with you. If you won't give me that key, I'll go right down and call the police. You'll be sorry. Give me that key. I didn't mean her any harm. You better not have done her any harm. Elvira finds Blanche tied up with her mouth taped shut. Before Elvira can help her, Jane grabs a hammer and hits Elvira with it. 
All right, there's about 30 minutes left, and believe it or not, the film gets even more insane. And you will likely never guess the ending. If you're a fan of suspense and psychological thrillers, this is an excellent film to check out. In addition, you see two of the most famous actresses in all of history together for the one and only time. And also knowing that the two pretty much hated each other in real life kind of makes it even more enthralling to watch. All right, I do have a quick 1987 interview with Betty Davis where she talks about Joan Crawford. And Betty Davis really wanted that third Oscar. The last person I want to ask you about is, is the lady with whom, in, in many minds, you are forever linked. That's Joan Crawford. I know, isn't it incredible we're forever linked and we made one film? It's funny that remained. Well, it was a good movie. It was a good movie. I as far as making the film with her, she was on time. She knew her lines. She basically was a pro. But we're very different kind of women, very different kind of actresses. Yes. But afterwards, the, how well, would you characterize your relationship? Well, the party the came when she saw to it, I didn't get the Oscar for Baby Jane. She went to all the New York nominees and said, if you can't get out there, I'll accept your award. And uh, please do not vote for her. She was so jealous. She was a fool, my dear. We had great percentage. If I had won that Oscar, We'd have made a million more dollars on the film. That's what always happens. So she didn't, wasn't very smart about what she did. You hurt by the memory of that? I was furious because that would have made me the first person with three. And as I, you know, I always have to be first as an Aries. Yes, and I should have had it all. Uh, very immodest of me. I should have had it that year no question all right some fun facts even though betty davis infamously lost out to ann bancroft for best actress in 1962 like i said before the film was nominated for a total of five oscars and it did win for best costume design black and white after the success of baby jane davis and crawford were to co-headline again in the 1964 film hush hush sweet charlotte However, the tension between the two actresses was just too much, and Crawford was instead replaced by Olivia de Havilland. Betty Davis had a Coca-Cola machine installed on set, and this was done deliberately to provoke Joan Crawford, who was the widow of Pepsi chairman Alfred Steele, and a celebrity spokesperson for that company. According to Betty Davis's book, This and That, the film was originally going to be shot in color, but Betty Davis opposed this, saying that it would just make a sad story look pretty. The wig that Betty Davis wears throughout the film had, unbeknownst to both leads, been worn by Joan Crawford in an earlier MGM movie. Because it had to be regroomed, Crawford just didn't recognize it. Joan Crawford was scheduled to appear alongside Betty Davis on a publicity tour for the film, but she canceled at the last minute. And Davis claimed that Crawford backed out because she didn't want to share the stage with her. In a 1972 telephone conversation, Crawford related to author Sean Considine, that after seeing a screening of the film, she urged Davis, who wasn't interested, to go and have a look. Later, when Joan didn't hear back from Davis, she just called her co-star to ask her what she thought of the film. And Davis replied, You were so right, Joan. The picture is good. And I was terrific. <laughs> Crawford then told the interviewer, You know, that was it. She never said anything about my performance. Not a word. Ingrid Bergman, Susan Hayward, Rita Hayworth, Catherine Hepburn, Jennifer Jones, and Ginger Rogers were all considered for the role of Baby Jane. Tallulah Bankhead, Claudette Colbert, Olivia de Havilland, and Marlene Dietrich were all considered to play the role of Blanche. 
All right, we have a special guest, and of course, it's Samantha, who loves her classic films. But how will she like this kind of off-kiltered suspense thriller with two of the greatest actresses of all time? We'll find out, and I'll be back next week with yet another random movie from my DVD collection. Okay, we're back with Samantha. Welcome back. Hello. Okay, so before we get into the film, which is whatever happened to Baby Jane, yes. uh, are you a? You have to pick one, Betty or Joan. Who who do you as an actress? Who 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 do you go oh, with? So I think just based off of how many films I've seen, mm-hmm. I think I'm a Betty Davis Makes fan sense. because honestly, I was trying to go back and think and. I can't really name a, uh, is this horrible? I can't really name a Joan Crawford movie that I can like recollect. Maybe it's Mildred just, Pierce. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. Maybe she's just like flown off like my, my like <laughs> radar of viewing, but yeah, I would say, yeah, Betty Davis. She's fun. <laughs> she is. And, and especially with this movie, I, I appreciate that she doesn't care about, the way she appears on screen, like looks wise, she'll put on the cake makeup and just totally do herself up for the role where I don't think Joan Crawford would ever do that. No, no. And of course, you know, Joan Crawford, there's the, the stories of her life. That's right. No no more wire hangers. (laughs) Have you gone and, and, and tried to watch mommy dearest? No, I haven't. Okay. No, that needs to be the next thing. It is trashy (laughs) TV or trashy movies at its finest. I don't know how much of it's actually true, but uh, it basically ruined Faye Dunaway's career. So there's that. Yeah, yeah. So that's what you said. So I I need to totally watch it. (laughs) At least once. It's a one. It's a one and done. Just for the the camp factor. Yeah. Okay. So then, also, uh, did you ever watch the miniseries Betty and Joan that was on FX? I did. And again, my memory is the worst when it comes to certain things. Mm -hmm. But I consume so much television; (laughs) it's horrible. I know I watched it. I can't say I finished it. Oh, really? I I know I watched several episodes. Um, I can't. Maybe it also. Maybe it just didn't like grab me. So I was like, yeah, I kind of lost interest. But yes, I did watch the first few episodes of how they kind of got involved with this and like you know where their lives were at the time, and I thought it was great, like stylistically. Um, what. And it definitely makes you appreciate this movie even more. Yeah. See, like, kind of the backstory and everything. So, All definitely the, the, the oh yeah, <laughs> so much drama. And and uh, if you're a fan of this, ep- if you're a fan of damn good movie memories, and then you like this episode, definitely watch uh, Feud Betty and Joan because I think you'll 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 appreciate the the movie even more. And Susan Sarandon, I always thought looked like a little bit like a young Betty Davis, so I thought it was perfect. And, yeah, she does when yeah. you really think about it. Uh-huh. The eyes, the, the eyes, totally. And uh-huh. then Jessa Lange was great as uh, Joan Crawford. Yeah, yeah, it was really great casting. Mm-hmm. So when was the first time, if you can remember, that you saw Whatever Happened to Baby Jane? I think I've seen it fairly recently. Like it wasn't one I watched, you know, when I was a child. <laughs> oh, that, that's where I was going with that. So. Yeah, yeah. It's probably been in like the past like 10 years or so. Okay. Um I I did a rewatch for this and yeah, it, it all seemed very fresh to me. Mm-hmm. So I think it was in the past few years or so. <laughs> so was the draw to it because Betty Davis and Joan Crawford was in it, or the you know, because of their 
I don't know, I, I guess feud or their, their rivalry, but also this, this movie is kind of like a camp, like cult classic too. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was probably more of that, the latter point of um, mm-hmm. the kind of cult classic. And also I like, you know, thrillers and kind of vintage horror like this. I'm not a, I like a mix of horror. Um, I don't like a lot of the like gory slasher, slasher vintage stuff, but I like more of the, the creepy horror, like uh, the shining, the exorcist. Mm -hmm. Uh, I recently rewatched Rosemary's baby. Yes. I was about to say, I like those kind of like the sixties, era 70s types with the really notable stars um yeah yeah I think that was definitely the draw here um but also I really liked like the old Hollywood angle because they both are you know they were top stars uh you know during their time and then in the movie (laughs) they are playing like you know relics of old Hollywood too. So I kind of, I liked the setting kind of that mix of like classic Hollywood, but also the psychological like horror type of thing. Um, It's so so funny. You mentioned that because one thing most people can, a lot of people consider this a horror film while others consider it like a suspenseful, like psychological thriller. Um, Where, where do you lie on that? Or do you think it's just a combination of all that? I definitely think when you first watch it, it's more of a suspense because you're kind of just wondering, you know, what's going to happen. Like these sisters live together. Clearly something's not right. How bad is it going to get? Really? You don't really know. And then I think when it's done and you see really kind of how this all started and kind of the extent they go to it, it is more of a a horror film like in retrospect but I think yeah initially viewing for me at least I felt more of like the tense like suspense another one of those films um have you ever seen the omen with Gregory Peck the original no I have not seen the original no I think you'd like it so okay Damien Angle and there were two sequels but definitely see the original because I think okay especially if you like the exorcist so yeah yeah okay I'll put that on my list. <laughs> so, okay. So we got going to the film. You just rewatched it. What are the most memorable scenes for you? You know, like I said, I'm not a huge fan of like the, like gore, like shock horror. Um, the thing that I remembered from before was her getting the, the bird and the rat. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> her on the plate. Um, I'm like, Oh, um, yeah, I think those are very memorable moments. And then I think like what I touched on too was it progressively gets more horrible. Yeah. So those shots when at the end when you see Joan Crawford's character in like tied up in bed. Yeah. Like the, you know, when the um musician guy he peers in through the door and yeah. like she's like hanging. Um <laughs> Like, ah, that that was really well shot because I think that's one of those like frames that really sticks in your mind. And then, yeah, just in general, I think, like, as you said, Baby Jane's look, the <laughs> whole movie is perfect. Yes. Um, her makeup, her little baby dresses, and she kind of just gets more 
crazy looking and (laughs) it was a a good, good progression there. So I think, yeah, there's a lot of really iconic like moments and shots in this movie. And how do you feel about black and white? I think for me, it works. This film works actually better because it is in black and white. It's eerie. Yes. Yeah. I don't think it would have been as great in color. No, not at all. I really like the black and white. I think for one, it, it is a really dark movie. Like they're in this dark old house. So I think like all the shadows and it's just dark and gross really. And then I think too, because they are these like old stars, it kind of is reminiscent of, you know, an older movie and it kind of works with like their look and everything. And it's, yeah, super dark. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and it, I, yeah, it's just, it's creepy. Like when she's doing her little, um, with Edwin, which is uh, Victor Bueno. Yes. Uh, when, when she's doing the little, her little spiel and he's kind of looking at her like, oh my God, what did I get myself into? Oh, like, yeah. It, it's great. Yeah. Like he, that was, I uh, whole that whole thing was just super creepy because you really see kind of how, how she's spiraling and regressing and it just gets out of control <laughs> yeah and, and for the most part the entire film is really just betty and, and joan i mean you do have victor bueno you you do have the housekeeper mm-hmm. and you have the neighbors for but for the most part it's just them which you, you never get tired of them either no yeah and i think too it kind of where the thing that I did kind of struggle with in this movie, and I think probably it was the point, is you never really know who to sympathize with. Right. Because you're spending all the time with the two characters, and you get a little bit of background, like, as they were children, and then what happened to them moving forward. But you kind of see equally, like, what they're doing mm-hmm. now, and then... At times you feel bad for baby Jane because like clearly she, something happened to her, like addiction, just childhood trauma, who knows? Yep. She went off the rails. And then you have um, Blanche who, you know, she's been stuck in bed essentially for 30 years and like she lost her career. So you feel like bad for her, but then at the same time, the more they interact, you're like, oh, they're both kind of like the villain, maybe they're manipulative and absolutely miserable, <laughs> and it's just horrible. So I yeah, I did like how it mostly is just the two of them. There isn't a lot of distraction. Yeah. Um, except for I think it is important to get like those other characters, and then we have flashes to like their neighbors and to kind of give context as to like you know, what really is happening in that house? <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I think, I think it was well like paced and like split up in that way. So without giving anything away, uh, were you happy with the twists and the, and the outcome of the film? Yeah. Yeah. And I think since it has been a few years since I watched it, I didn't remember exactly the final, the final twist, I suppose. Yeah, it really, like like I mentioned, it makes you rethink kind of the whole movie and w- the intentions of everybody involved. So I liked it. I would say the ending was a little awkward and abrupt. Oh, definitely. <laughs> um, like, I would have liked a little more, like, closure, perhaps. Um, but, 
yeah, it does kind of make you just leave with that like final thought of like what actually happened. And it gave you, you know, you're kind of, you still feel a little like uneasy at the end. (laughs) Yeah. And actually I think that's, what's nice somewhat about older films is there's sometimes that ambiguity about you can really go either way, depending on what your point of view is. And I bet this film definitely does that. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah, I kind of like sat there for a few minutes afterward and I was like, oh, well, hmm. Oh, maybe I want to go back and like rewatch parts of it. Yeah. <laughs> I think all good movies have that. So whether yeah. it be plot points or just uh, enjoyable moments. So you would definitely recommend this. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. Just I think for many reasons, like it is really iconic and fun. And I think you could watch it from like multiple perspectives. Like if you want to watch it kind of like as a a campy movie, it can be funny in a weird way and entertaining. But then also like it is definitely a thriller. And like, yeah, if you watch it at night in the dark, it can be a little (laughs) scary. (laughs) Definitely. And uh, and it's funny how their careers, both Betty and Joan, they kind of did more of these kind of... uh, psychological thriller uh films and some are better than others there's a great one i can't remember what it's called for joan crawford but it's uh it basically all comes from a prank phone call and this whole like murder mystery happens because of one prank phone call that that turned into um a real thing and and joan crawford's in it so you might like that one too cool okay (laughs) well as always thank you so much samantha yeah thank you If you are ever in the San Francisco Bay Area and still love collecting or renting DVDs or VHS tapes, come check out Captain Video and San Mateo at 2837 South El Camino Real. Captain Video is open six days a week and closed on Wednesday, and one of the last traditional video stores still running in the United States. New movies you can rent for $2.99 a day. Old movies you can rent for $2.99 for five days. And if renting isn't your thing, you can also purchase anything you find in the store. Be sure to tell Ira that you heard about Captain Video from the Damn Good Movie Memories podcast. Happy renting and happy collecting at Captain Captain Video. Video. Come hang out and chill with Brian A. Davis and the Bad Beat. Wednesdays, 11 p.m. Eastern, right here on ThatMetalStation.com.